0: Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given you in Christ Jesus. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, he will strengthen you to the end, that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord. God is faithful. By him you were called. This is the word of the Lord. Paul had a long and contentious relationship with the church at Corinth. He had spent all of his earlier life in Asia Minor, primarily in what we know today as Turkey. And then he had a vision, a voice and an arm bidding him come over the straits of Bosphorus into Europe, And he crossed over at Philippi, then Thessalonica, then Berea, then Athens, and then to Corinth. Scholars believe he arrived in the year 49 in Corinth, that he spent a good 18 months or so there establishing the church. And then he felt God leading him back across that part of the Aegean Sea into Asia, modern-day Turkey, where he re-established and helped strengthen the churches there, spending a lot of time at Ephesus. Scholars believe that Paul had been gone from Corinth maybe three and a half years or so when he wrote this letter. Let's take a look at four things right here at the beginning. Number one, three times in this brief passage, he uses the words, were called, were called, passive voice. I was called, you were called. The one by whom you were called. Passive voice. God is the actor. Paul believed God had called him. Paul believed God had called the people of Corinth. Into faith in the one true God, Israel's God, as revealed now in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you know the name Brad Melser? Brad Meltzer is a young novelist who's turning out one bestseller after another he's only 42 years old but in an article recently he was being interviewed about his success and he said I haven't always felt successful I grew up in Brooklyn New York Maybe be fun to live in New York City if you have a lot of money it's not always a great place if you have very little and we had very little my father had menial jobs in Brooklyn my mother sat at home, smoked cigarettes, and read the National Enquirer. That's where the real truth is, she used to tell us. You might find it strange, she said, that I'm a novelist, and I grew up in a house with no books. None. My grandfather was a great storyteller, and from spending the time I could with him when I was a little boy, I learned to love a great story. My grandmother was the one who loved books, and she would read to me and my sister in the public library she would take us to the public library in brooklyn and read to us and show us this wonderful world of books when my sister and i were early teens he said our father lost his job again so he announced when he got home that day well at least we can get out of this cold weather and he packed us up with no job no contacts and no money, and headed south to Florida. So here we were, our father desperately trying to find a job without any real skills. My sister and I were early teens, when you're easily embarrassed at best, and we're sitting there in a booth in Wendy's while our dad is begging them to let him wash dishes or make a hamburger. I've never forgotten it. I just thought our lives were over, just over. But gradually, he said, in school, I saw a new way, a better way. I ended up at the University of Michigan, first person in my immediate family ever to attend a four-year college. I got my degree. I was so afraid that it might happen to me what had happened to my father, When he's nearly 40 years old, no job, no hope, nothing ahead of him. So after University of Michigan, I went on to Columbia Law School and got my law degree. But I discovered by this time I wanted to be a writer. Before I finished law school, I would published my first two books. The first one, I had 24 rejects from various publishers. I didn't have as much trouble publishing the second. And then Brad Meltzer said, If you read my books, look for that moment where a very important character feels I'm at a place where there's no way out. I'm at a place where there's no way out. And then in my books, I show a way that ordinary people can effect meaningful change. Paul believed ordinary people can effect meaningful change and that God has called us all to do that very thing. Number two, he says, You have received grace, the grace of Israel's one true God, as you've come to know him in Christ Jesus, your Lord. In October we came to the 1700th anniversary of a very important battle fought by a young Roman commander named Constantine. He led his forces into battle at a place called Milvian Bridge. But he did something no Roman commander had ever done before. The night before he was going to lead his men into battle, he had them all take out their shields, and paint on the front of their shields two symbols. One looks like a big X. It's not from Latin. It's from Greek. Most Americans call it a chi. The Greeks call it a chi. The other ran up through the big X. It looks sort of like a P, but in Greek it's an R, a row the K-R-O, the Christos, the Messiah. He went into battle with all of his men shields, saying, K-R-O, Christ, Christ. He won that battle. The Roman Empire had already started to decline. they had a long series of Caesars now who were killed one after the other, assassinated by some jealous, quarrelsome faction, Constantine would rule for 31 years. From the time he was 34 until he died at 65, he would expand the empire more than it had been expanded in years. He would go all the way east to the ancient city of Byzantium and transform it into a city called Constantinople. He would finally be tired of all the quarreling factions of Christians, and he would lock up the best and brightest of them and say, you're not coming out till you can all agree on something. And what they produced was the Nicene Creed. That Jesus was very man of very man, and very God a very God, begotten, not made, of the same substance as the Father. But Constantine was not baptized until he knew he was dying at 65. He asked, could he be baptized? And in various parts of Italy, there are scenes of his baptism paintings and stained glass windows. Why did he wait so long? Because he was afraid he might sin after he received the grace of God. We do sin after we receive the gift. And so we confess again and are again forgiven. Baptized once, once in any lifetime is plenty, but again and again asking him to straighten our course, move us a little left, a little right, a little left, a little right, and transform us into the people he first had in mind. Number three, the third thing he's saying to the church at Corinth is this. I know I told you Jesus was coming back right away from the day I arrived among you. It's been about five years. I know he's not back, but you just have to keep hanging in there. You have to keep hanging in there. You have to work as quickly as you can, because we've got to tell as many as we can about what God has done in Christ Jesus and then you have to be patient. You have to hurry and wait and hurry and wait. My brother, his wife, have had sort of a hard time the last few weeks. His wife's mother was the only parent of the six of us still living. By six, I mean my sister, my brother, I, and our three spouses The five of us have already buried, mother and father, and Tony had buried her father and now her mother. She was doing really well till just a few months ago, and then all of a sudden everything started falling apart, everything failing to function, and then she died. She was living in Tyler, and that's about 60 miles from Carthage, where my brother and sister and their spouses live, and so there had been a lot of trips, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth to Tyler finally she had died. It had been raining for three days and nights down there when they had the funeral. And the graves fill up with water when it rains for three days and nights. I was feeling for them. I had a funeral here at the very time they were having the funeral down in Texas. Sent me an email. He was complaining about the bank examiners. He'd been president, chair of the board of a small town bank. He was the founding president. They've done well for a small-town bank. They were not a part of any of the banking problems in 2008. They don't loan to people they don't know. They don't sell their loans to anybody else. They service their own loans. They collect what's due them. Nonetheless, all these new regulations have been visited on small-town banks as they've been visited on big ones. And he was sort of mumbling about all that. They've got a granddaughter. She was born unable to hear in one ear, completely deaf in one ear. And it's slowing her down, her development, her speech and all that she's hearing on only on one side. Just, He said, well, he just turned on an old movie, Tombstone, to watch that. Did you see that movie? I saw it. It was another one of the Wyatt Earp movies about the gunfight at the O.K. Corral. My favorite character in this particular version was played for Doc Holliday, and it was Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer lost a lot of weight to look like a guy dying of tuberculosis. Through the whole movie, his eyes look red and glazed, you know, just look like he is near death. He's trying to help Wyatt Earp with all these bad folks coming into Tombstone. One of my favorite scenes in the movie when one of the really bad guys challenges Wyatt Earp just to meet him out there under a tree one morning, right after the sun rises, just shoot it out. Wyatt Earp had a wife and family. Doc Holliday had nobody. He'd been a gambler, gone from city to city, town to town out there in the wild frontier. Was very quick with a gun, though. He had been in various scrapes and saloons across the West. So instead of Wyatt Earp going out to meet this fellow that morning, all you saw was a man coming toward the bad guy with his hat down, head down. It's foggy, sun just starting to rise. And just as he gets right in front of the guy, he lifts his face, and you see it's Val Kilmer, it's Doc Holliday. And he says, I'll be your huckleberry. I wasn't even sure what that meant, but I thought it was a great line. Well, I looked it up. Do you know what it means? Well, years ago, supposedly, it was a way of measuring one thing against another. My huckleberry is bigger than your acorn. My huckleberry is bigger than your peanut. And it came to mean, I'm at least as much as is required of me. It meant that morning, sort of, I'm your man. You want to draw? I'm your man. Well, Doc was dying. He went to Denver, where they were building a new hospital. It's still there. It's become internationally known for treating respiratory diseases, but they certainly didn't know how to cure tuberculosis. He was dying. Wyatt Earp went all the way to Denver to see him. And as he leaned down over the bed, he said, Doc, tell me about yourself, things I don't know. Well, he said, I just loved one woman my whole life. She was a teenage girl. I was a young man. She decided to go into a convent and become a nun. Never loved anybody like her again. How about you, White? What do you really want? White character says, I just want a normal life. And Doc Holliday said, There ain't no normal life. There's just life. And my brother in his email said, I heard Doc saying, Quit complaining. Just get on with it. This is a new day. Everybody's got a hurt, a pain, a frustration, a disappointment of one kind or another. You've been given a new day. Get on with it. It's a gift of God. Number four. He will strengthen you to the very end. If you hurry up and wait, hurry up to do his bidding and be patient, In result. He will strengthen you all the way to the end. George Saunders is a writer born in Amarillo, Texas. You know, writing has gone through a phase, like painting has gone through a phase. Gail and I love great museums of the world. We've seen a number of them, but we prefer paintings that look like something we know. I mean, to see the work of these great artists Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Rubens, these kinds of paint, to look and see the detail in a fancy collar, in a cuff, in a beautiful jacket, in a magnificent dress, even a still life. And then there are museums where you walk up to a canvas that's eight feet by six and it's got two dots and a slash, And, of course, an artist's answer, if you ask, well, what does that mean? Whatever you see. <laughs> well, I don't see anything, so let's go over that way. <laughs> well, writing has gone through that phase. Uh, Paul Galloway, Jr., whom many of you came to know and love so much, Bishop and Miss Galloway's uh, only son, Graduate University of Oklahoma School of Journalism ended up being a feature writer for many years for the Chicago Sun-Times, Chicago Tribune. And Paul told me some years ago: the most creative writing being done in America right now, the New Yorker Magazine. You need to read the New Yorker Magazine. I tried hard. But you would read a story that went eight, ten pages, and the last sentence was: it rained. What does that mean? It didn't have anything to do with the story as far as I could tell. I quit reading The New Yorker. Uh, it's, uh, cartoons, I loved it. Stories, I didn't get. So when I find a short story writer who writes a story that has meaning, I say, let's read him. This guy's name is George Saunders. Started life in Amarillo, Texas. Family moved to Chicago. Chicago. He thought at first he was going to be some kind of engineer. He went to the Colorado School of Mines, got his Bachelor of Science degree. But he discovered that great writing fascinated him more. And he gravitated toward our Methodist University, Syracuse University. And he got his master's degree there and started publishing. Now he teaches on the faculty at Syracuse. Here's the kind of story George Saunders writes. There was a man who'd been diagnosed with terminal cancer. He was getting worse. Doctors who really cared said we simply do not have a way to treat your particular aggressive cancer. One day, I remember George Saunders lives in Syracuse, New York. The university it was snowing. Wind blowing the snow and this sick man looks out across a park and decides if I were just to walk as far as I can into that park with nothing but what I have on a pair of slacks and an undershirt I'll just die out there and it'll be over. And so he starts out across the park wind blowing, snow swirling. And little boy, playing out there in the park, sees this crazy man and decides he needs a coat. And he runs home to get a jacket and starts running through the park to catch up with this crazy man who's freezing to death, takes a shortcut, runs across a little icy pond, and crashes through The man who's dying hears this child and turns and goes to rescue him. The story means, as long as it's all about you, you're losing. As long as it's all about you and your stuff, you're losing. And when it becomes, how can I help him, her, her? It's as wonderful as you've been promised.